Hi, everyone. Welcome to Black Ann, a candid conversation about racism, white people, and ways to move forward. I'm Jonathan. And I'm April. We're brother and sister looking to discuss how race and racism informs important social issues, current events, and basically what white people looking to make a difference can do to help. Today, we're really excited to dive into FTR number one, a fundamental truth about racism. We have gotten some feedback and some questions about what we mean when we say all white people are racist. So we're going to talk about that some more. Then we have an interview with Martise Johnson, a former UVA student and current organizer who, as a student, was arrested and brutalized by the police. Uh, He made national headlines, and we're going to discuss what he's been up to since then. And then, as always, we'll leave you with an action item. But before we dive into all that, Jonathan, what's on your mind? So, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about uh, our FTRs, our fundamental truths about racism, and we've been getting a ton of great feedback about them, and I think people are appreciative of the fact that we've laid out these sort of blunt um, truths that we're operating under, but I think today it uh, would be worth diving into FTR number one um, because of how important it is and how controversial of a statement it might sound standing alone. Just as a reminder, the five FTRs are... Number one, all white people are inherently racist. Number two, uh, being called racist shouldn't be considered a slur or a conversation ender uh, because of number one. It's a natural part of whiteness. Um, Number three is that uh, it's white people's responsibility to fix racism. Number four is when discussing race, it's white folks' responsibility to listen and learn. And number five, the fact that these FTRs apply to both me and April because of our half-whiteness and the benefits that we experience uh, because of that. So I think it makes sense to talk about FTR number one and really put some meat on the bones and explain what we mean when we say that all white people are racist because we do understand that that can be jarring to hear um, because it's a blanket statement with no exceptions. John, maybe the best place to start is defining racism. Yeah, so I think the definition of racism that we operate under is more of is more fundamental and more basic even than what a lot of people believe racism to be. So um, racism is defined as white people benefiting from institutional white supremacy and black people being harmed by it. That is what racism is. Um, all white people benefit from white supremacy. So we talk about, you hear the term white privilege a lot. Um, That's why folks who discuss it are quick to point out that it doesn't matter how much money a white person has. It doesn't matter how poor they grew up. It doesn't matter um, what they have or haven't been able to achieve. They all benefit from the system of white supremacy, which props them up and supports them in in our society at the expense of black people. Um, And so, you know, the inherent sort of um, we live in a country where whiteness is considered the norm and often considered supreme um, and so if you just think financial, social, political, cultural power, where is all of that wielded and who controls all of that? For the most part, there are a few exceptions, but for the most part in this country, it's uh, it's white America. And so not only is whiteness and, and white people uh, 
you know, sort of operating the levers of power in this country and wielding a disproportionate amount of power than, than all the other races um, combined, whiteness is also considered the norm in so many ways, the baseline of what, of what we're operating from. Yeah, I hear that all the time. People ask, you know, what was her race or was she just white? And right, right. Yeah. And the, it, it is, whiteness is presumed um, because that's the, that is the default setting yeah. when identifying someone. Or was when, she just white? Like, was right, she just right. normal? Or, or, right. Or what was her race? Right, right. You know, if not a, white, as, what was her right. race? What was the other about her? Right. As if white is not a race. Right. Um, exactly. So even little indicators like that sort of show that whiteness is the default setting here in this country and it's the starting point and everything else is a is a, a separate thing or an other from whiteness and so you know we see this in the standards that are set for beauty yeah i mean google beautiful women and and look at the pictures that right. come up the images of all the white women that come up first right right and we talked about that in our in our first episode about interracial dating and beauty standards um you know, so there's there's what is considered beautiful. There is the actual power that is wielded by our government. Think of who, what are the races of the people that have run our country since it started? Yeah, literally one black president. Right, exactly. And so we have, you know, for a while there was, you know, one, two black senators, right? And Obama right. was one of them. Right. Um, and, and now we have a few more. But um, governors, there's only been a few. There's but you could The list goes on and on that there. It's overwhelmingly white. Um and so, you know, we think about wealth. You think about who controls the wealth in this country. Yeah, um, I, I actually was researching this and saw in the New York Times. Right. Um, it says something like for every hundred dollars um, that a white family would have, a black family would hold like five dollars to that. So the the gap there is just it's just enormous. And the, and the racial wealth gap is we've seen now is widening as, as everyone would believe that race relations are getting better and progressing in this country. The, the economic sort of wealth gap between the races is widening. Um, so, you know, there are a number of, of examples of ways in which whiteness is sort of just by far and away in this country, um, receives, um, you know, is not only in control of what we see, what we what entertains us, what we find beautiful, what our who runs our country. Um, it all it also is really clear that that whiteness affords um, members of the race a degree of protection in a way. So you look at um, incarceration rates. Non-white people are disproportionately represented within jails and prisons. Um, even for things like nonviolent drug offenses, which study after study has shown, uh, you know, races are not more or less willing to use or sell drugs. In fact, if anything, white people are more likely to sell and use drugs by a small margin. So, you know, incarceration is just one of many, many, and what's one of the most extreme examples of ways that, that black people are harmed by white supremacy um, and, and white people are inherently insulated and protected by it. Um, so to us, all white people are inherently racist because they benefit from white supremacy. It's not something that they can help or even 
have to be aware of. This is an observation of our society. This is not a judgment call that we're making here. This is an acknowledgement that white supremacy is real and and undiscerning. It is it is it blankets everyone who is included in the group to the detriment of everyone who is not. Yeah, in conversations um, with white people about race and racism, I hear a lot of falsehoods. I think the biggest one um, that I hear people talking about and I've talked with, I've spoken with people about is that um, the notion of reverse racism, um, that black people can be racist because of the notion of white supremacy and the fact that racism involves um, an element of institutionalized power and the institutional structures uh, on which our country was founded don't support black people in the ways that it supports white people. And not only does it not support black people, it was designed to support white people. So it was put in place by white people for white people. Right. Um, that's, not, that's not funny. I was about to make a boo-boo <laughs> joke. Um, but um, yeah, it was put in place by white people for white people, and a lot of times to protect them from black people. So the notion that... that a black person could be racist toward a white person and and carries with him or her the sort of institutional framework that is required to harm a per, another race of power or uh, freedom. It's not a realistic not way true. to look at it. Right. Um, and so and I think a lot of people think that racism is just being mean. Well, yeah, I was going to say. Or having having mean views. Yeah, another another... You know, one of the falsehoods is that, you know, mistreating someone or being mean to someone is someone because of their race is always racism. Right. Which which isn't true. Um, Which is shocking to people to hear hear people say that. Right. Because that to a lot of people is the definition of what racism is, being mean to someone because of their race. Right. So I like to, in situations like that, give a sort of extreme example, right? So go way back to to slavery days. Um, Imagine a slave coming inside from a day of working outside in the hot sun, being mistreated and abused, and saying to his wife, man, I hate white people. I hate everything about them that is hatred towards someone because of their race but you would never call that slave racist would you right that's um, simply reactionary right um and it is that's that slave who's complaining is so deprived of any sort of institutional power or equity that it's not anything more than a thought to him right if he had the power he wouldn't be a slave right Right. exactly and so Um, we bring that up to today and it's while it's less extreme because we don't have active slavery in this country as we did, you know, 200 years ago. But it's the same notion that black people's feelings or even actions toward white people are reactions to experiencing racism on a daily basis. Right. So not only are they reactionary, but they also don't have the institutional power to do anything. Nothing can come from it. And again, individual people can do mean things to other individual people because of their race. I imagine someone, a black or brown person, committing some sort of violence against a white person. Um, People would say, that is racist. And it's like, that is a horrible crime. Right, it's wrong. It's wrong, uh, but it is not 
operating under an institutionalized power structure and power framework. Um, the same goes with uh, a black boss at a job who can fire a white person. Um, that one person might have power over white people in some way, but that black person's race is not afforded institu- an institutional sort of framework of power and control the way that white people are. I think, yeah, and another falsehood that I hear often is people assuming that racism affects all black and brown people equally. Uh, I think it's important for us to note that that is definitely a falsehood. And Jonathan and I uh, definitely experienced that. Being half white, we are afforded what some people call the privileges of um, having lighter skin, which makes us part of um, the white supremacy institution in this country. And we definitely recognize that and realize how it affects us differently from compared to how it affects uh, darker-skinned black people. Right, people who are, in, who are not as in close proximity to whiteness as we are. Right. Um, because right. of our white mother. Right. So when we're saying all white people are racist, it's not a, an individualized attack on the white person listening, although to an extent it is an observation of the white person's place in the world. Uh, it, it's just an acknowledgement of all of these facts that we've just listed with respect to the way that race operates in this country and who's sort of running the show. White people can't escape their whiteness, so they can't escape the benefits that come from their whiteness when compared to people who are not white, so they can't escape racism. That is, the benefits that white people, quote-unquote benefits, that white people get from being white are racism. That is what racism is. And so, yes, of course all white people fit into that category. So, of course, all white people are racist to a degree. Um, And it shouldn't be a controversial thing for us to point that out. Um, Now, it doesn't make you a bad person. Right, right. I think you're saying, right? Right, and it doesn't have to be, right, because all we just described, none of it was, I don't believe, intentional overt actions. It was all just, again, observations of the way that, (laughs) <laughs> the way that our society is sort of set up and right. the way that it, the country was intentionally founded this way. And so, um, you know, of course, intentional actions make it worse and exacerbate those things. Hate crimes, I think of, or, or discrimination, overt discrimination, they, of course, exacerbate all of this. But the underlying stream, the steady stream here is that uh, there are a number of, of benefits, and I put benefits in quotes because... I think if you really dig deep into it, they aren't actually benefits right. when all is said and done because it's, I think something happens to your hum- humanity when you're sort of bolstered at the expense of another group of people, but that's a, a conversation for another <laughs> day, I think. Um, you know, but but that's the sort of, that's the given here. So that's why this is FTR number one for us is it informs all the rest because this is an observation of what our society has Uh, intentionally been designed to be. Um, So, John, if all white people are racist um, and they can't be, quote, unracist, what can they do to help? Right. So this, we hear this a lot. So, right, yeah. So as we've sort of implied here, there's nothing that white people, white people cannot realistically avoid racism. They cannot not be racist. Yeah. Um, but 
you know, high on the list of things that white people can always be trying to do to improve and to lessen the effects of their racism is those, you know, benefits that we were talking about earlier, working on acknowledging those and trying to give them up, trying to avoid receiving those benefits to the extent that you realize that you're, that you're getting them. And, and in, at the same time, working to advance and advocate for non-white people using those privileges and using those benefits that you're, you're afforded just by your whiteness. So you're saying like financially, you know, like support black and brown businesses, own businesses and yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, all of the above, right? So, so what else can they do? Everything from sort of you know creating spaces, um, even in the workplace or in you know in larger society for black and brown people to have safe, comfortable places to speak and and um, air out concerns and grievances. Um, right. Donating wealth and time and energy to organizations that support. Um, black and brown people or to black and brown people generally. We can talk about uh, reparations at some point (laughs) on the show, I'm sure. Um, Even everyday sort of social interactions, never, ever, ever letting racist comments slide. Don't ever laugh off something that you heard someone say that you think was sort of coded in in racism. Um, And, you know, don't let those things pass unchallenged. Um, and I think even jumping off of that, just forming relationships with black people, um, I would say intimate relationships where the black or brown person feels safe in the relationship and can be honest and open with you um, and you becoming a person who can learn from them and who cares about them. And from that relationship, um, you know, the the as a white person, you become invested and incentivized by that relationship and you want the best for um, your black or brown friend. Right. And that is not to be confused with, you know, the sort of, well, I have a black friend, you know, so that is not enough. That is not. And, and, right. That's and, a starting point. Right. And and right. So there's there's sort of uh, right tokenism issues here. Like if you you in your large uh, array of sort of social interactions and, and friends. If you have your, if you have one close relationship with a black person, that does not do much to uh, to lessen the effects of your own white supremacy and your own racism. So it has to be a lot more than that. It's one. It's not any one of any of these things that we're listing. It's all and plus much more. Um, and I think another really big thing that white people can do is to listen more. And that is a that sounds sort of hokey. It's one of our FTRs. Yeah, you know, and it, it, it is it is really something that is um, that is striking how much of a say white people have in race discussions. Mm-hmm. How much of how much credence is or how much credit is given to their opinions about race relations and the way forward and how bad things are in this country from a racism perspective. Um, white people, because they are uh, a part of this bigger white supremacist sort of framework, are, in my mind, quite literally the least qualified people to talk about race um, from, a, from the perspective of, of what the having a realistic view of what our society looks like. Um, so black and brown people are qualified by definition of our experience. So listening, just shutting up and listening um, is huge. 
Wow, John. So having said all that, um, right. I think it's important to remember that, you know, there are things that white people can do to help fight racism. We just listed a bunch of them. And also, I'm going to point back to FTR uh, number two, which is right. being called racist, basically what we just did now, calling all white people racist. It's not a personal attack. It's an observation of how our country was founded and how we how it's, you know, lived out today. But it, it's important to remember that being called racist isn't the end all be all. You can still be a great person. You can help you can help fight racism. Um, you can learn and listen and support black and brown people. You know, we're in this together. And you can help reverse this. You can help dismantle this. Yeah, exactly. Racism will always exist. It's impossible for one person to end it. But if all white people did their best to give up that supremacy and to equalize the playing field for black and brown people, racism would eventually be so minimized that black and brown people wouldn't so strongly feel the effects of it. Right. So that's what was on my mind this week, um, and I feel good to have gotten that off my chest now, and I think it was good for us to sort of uh, add some context to, to that particular FTR. Uh, so after the break, we will have our conversation with former UVA student Marquise Johnson. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with former University of Virginia student Martise Johnson. Uh, back in 2015, Martise was assaulted by law enforcement right off of UVA's campus, and images of that bloody assault uh, went viral, prompting a national conversation about police use of force, particularly on college campuses. After that incident, Martise became a student organizer at UVA and then went on to attend University of Michigan Law School, where he's currently a student. So, Martise, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. You want to give us a little bit of background on sort of uh, what you sort of got into at UVA in, in terms of organizing uh, after after this this incident? Yeah, um, I think that uh, it's important to uh, note that before my incident, I was really involved on campus as well. So I was uh, I immediately joined the Black Student Alliance in my first uh, year of, of undergrad. And went on at the end of that school year to take a leadership position within an organization specifically geared toward leadership development for younger students on campus. Um, And so we planned a lot of retreats for developing leadership within the black community. A lot of that was geared toward political organizing and infiltrating larger institutionalized organizations that have power on campus where black students weren't present um, and therefore uh, were often slated and not given the opportunities that they deserve as well as the resources they deserve. And so a lot of my early work on campus was revolved around that kind of organizing. Um, I eventually, uh, after my incident, gained uh, what I guess some will call it uh, a bittersweet platform. I, uh, yeah. had this, I had this platform where, you know, uh, I had um, at least semi-national reach and was able to uh, sort of expand my voice beyond UVA's campus into larger communities. Um, and talk about uh, problems that we were having on campus at UVA, but also issues that were happening nationwide and something that um, felt like something that was a small community issue um, that was just occurring in millions of different places at once. So do you feel like you were able to have um, an impact at UVA through organizing? 
Yeah, I think so. I think that uh, if you talk to anybody who's ever been through student leadership at UVA, there's this issue of um, in the 1970s when black students were, um, you know, just then uh, forming their community and really and really putting a stake in this community. Um, you know, they uh, were going through the same issues as us, whether it was uh, trying to claim a uh, space such as the black bus stop, which was this transient, um, you know, uh, space where there was no physical structure there besides a bus stop, but it was a place where black students congregated and felt safe and understanding what that meant to the black community. Um, and understanding that um, in 2016, when I graduated, there was still this uh, this sort of notion of trying to reclaim the black bus stop or understanding that, uh, you know, segregation and racism on campus has existed from the time that black students uh, were being physically abused to where Daisy Lovelace um, in the early 2000s was uh, subject to physical violence when she ran for student council council president. I mean, understanding that in 2013, when I was on campus, there were physical instances as well as uh, uh, visual instances like cartoon graphics on Beta Bridge, which is a large landmark at UVA, um, right. showing the, the word nigger. Um, along with a cartoon character with a large penis. And so I think that all these issues are sort of cyclical. It's really difficult to make um, a ton of sustainable change because every four years there's a new turnover of students. And so there's a, a sort of set of issues that sort of transcend every class and that we each contribute to and sort of push the ball forward a little bit. Um, and I think that's kind of what uh, I did along with a bunch of my friends, is, you know, got the ball moving forward a little bit more. Um, but really just contributed to what the black community has been trying to do at UVA for a long time, which is create uh, a safe home for us where we can experience wellness and uh, cultivate growth within our community on campus. Do you think with uh, each new graduating class, there's a new possibly encouraging sense of development and inclusivity, um, at least that mindset with each new class? Or do you th think that that is something that's sort of static and maybe not changing as fast or as quickly with each new coming class? I think it's tough because um, I think the problems uh, are sort of the same, but they evolve in a lot of ways. They become more nuanced. And I think that that is a result of continuous organizing throughout the years and generations. And so now we're talking about intersectionality when maybe in the 70s we were simply talking about black versus white racism. Um, and so things are consistently evolving. Uh, but I think that as opposed to uh, the community uh, at UVA being static or growing, none of those, neither of those things are particularly happening. It's more of a, a tumultuous kind of relationship where there are these large scale events that occur that make people realize that, wow, like problems are actually occurring and um, there is no active solution to it or no active mitigation of it, despite when the issue, when the large problem occurs, because people sort of forget and they like to pretend that it doesn't exist. So there's always this sort of large moment where everyone uh, finally wakes up and realizes, wow, like there are still institutions in place at this university and at universities nationwide, which uh, allow these problems to continue to self-perpetuate. And um, I think that a lot of people like to call um, my era at the university, the T. Sully era, which is uh, Teresa Sullivan, the former president at UVA. Uh, she uh, pretty much became president in 2011 or 2012. I arrived at the university in 2012. And she uh, left the university uh, at the end of 2017 academic year, which is uh, a year after I graduated. And, and in that small period of about five to six years, um, there were about three or four extremely large inc incidents, um, at least two of them, uh, which involved racial um, incidents that 
many people on campus pretty much realized that we had a lot more problems than what uh, might immediately seem to meet the eye. Yeah, no, so, and just so the listeners are clear, uh, Martise and I, um, so when did, what year did you come in, Martise, you just said? I came in 2012 and I exited in 2016. 2012. Okay, so we did not have uh, any overlap uh, while we were there. I graduated from the law school in 2011, and of course, while I was there as well, there were just all sorts of incidents that were similar in um, in horror to what you went through um, with respect to police, um, and then my own sort of debacle while I was there. Um, and Teresa Sullivan was president that whole time as well. I didn't see any huge sort of changes taking place. I wonder if you could tell our listeners, you know, with respect to to police use of force and and even just the sort of generalized issues that we're seeing on campus with uh, with respect to that sort of the sort of overt racism we're seeing. What changes have you seen in terms of in terms of positive changes? What what progress have you seen since your since your incident, if any? Yeah, I think that um, in Charlottesville, at the university, and in uh, communities at large, there's a, a larger emphasis on uh, you know uh, diversity training, de-escalation training, um, and ensuring that uh, police officers have these uh, preventative steps in place before they actually uh, become physical with a citizen um, in order to try to, um, at least on, on police forces and mitigate the amount of financial as well as uh, emotional, social damage that they do in these communities they navigate. And so I think that that's definitely been um, a priority for police forces. I don't know that they have gotten to where they need to go. Well, I know for a fact they have not gotten to where they need to go. Right. Um, and, uh, but I think that is, is extremely difficult for, um, after my incident, your incident, and, and all of those that have happened across UVA and Charlottesville, to, it's difficult for police forces um, in Charlottesville and statewide to ignore the fact that there's an issue within their forces and there's a, a, a lack of training that's causing these issues to occur. And so I think that uh, people like understand the issue is present. And uh, they've understood that for a long time, but now there's this political and social pressure um, coming from community members, coming from organizers, people who have been uh, pushing the government and pushing uh, community stakeholders who have power to pretty much uh, fight for change, to, to have to make change. Um, and I think that that's what's been getting the ball rolling. Uh, like I said, I think there's so much more left to do, and I think that we're going in the right direction and we know the answers. We just haven't implemented those answers yet. Um, and that is still a work in progress, in my opinion. So, you know, I have to ask you, you know, you graduate from, from UVA and then a couple years later, you see this white supremacist rally that has become so famous now, you know, these folks marching through the very campus that you were just at and yeah. you're, you know, the place that you, you spent the last four years. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on experiencing that you know how did you find out about this how did you hear about it what was your reaction when you saw it happening and uh and yeah just your general sort of take on that whole sort of era in charlottesville's history yeah um so that rally happened about uh a year and a few months after i graduated from the university and i remember um earlier that summer because the rally happened in august i remember earlier that summer there was a smaller uh kkk rally a clan rally that occurred, and it didn't really turn out to what people expected it to be. So there was all this hype around, oh, there's going to be a Klan rally near Charlottesville. Uh, we need to be prepared. Um, we need to make sure people are safe, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then the rally happened, and it and it sort of fizzled. Um, and a lot of people saw that as, you know, including myself, 
uh, a sign that maybe these, uh, you know, groups are not as organized and not as powerful as they may present themselves in social media or um, in the news, et cetera. And I remember writing uh, me and a friend, Erin Frazier, who uh, graduated from the university in 2017. Uh, she's a Rhodes Scholar, and she's currently um, doing some work at Oxford, I believe, and on our way to Stanford Law in the fall. We wrote a short article in the Washington Post about the rumors that there would be a Unite the Right rally led by Jason Kessler um, because he was approved for a permit to uh, you know, have a rally uh, that was supposed to be geared toward white nationalism. And uh, once he got the permit, people were sort of freaking out. People were um, afraid for their safety, which is, uh, obviously made sense. Um, and more, more than that, people were uh, talking about uh, counter-protesting in social media. And it became this huge event um, and before it even occurred. And so I remember uh, Aaron and I, uh, referencing the, the Klan rally that happened previously, wrote an article and basically said, uh, we understand that people are worried. We understand that people are angry and they, and they feel the need to um, respond and, and, and sort of retaliate, in a sense, to this, to this hate that's being spewed on our campus and in our community. Uh, but we believe that you should should attempt to not give these individuals power by uh, responding to you know what they're doing, and, and it was this whole argument that we've heard before. Um, you empower individuals by giving them the platform to speak. Uh, if if the Charlottesville community is going to give them a, a platform by giving them a permit, we're going to take away that platform by not showing them the you know the time of day. And right. we put that article out um, in the Washington Post. And then uh, a few days before uh, the rally occurred, we realized things were a lot more serious than they uh. initially seemed to be. Uh, we realized that there were individuals coming from all parts of Virginia, um, namely rural South, Southern Virginia. Um, and it wasn't just a handful of people like the Klan rally. It was an extremely large community um, behind the platform of two uh, extremely large uh, representatives of the Unite the Right rally, uh, with one being maybe even both being a UVA graduate. And so uh, once the event actually happened, I remember uh, people expected to rally, the rally to happen one morning and the night before I got a call from uh, DeRay McKesson. He was like, did you know that there are white nationalists storming uh, your, your quad right now? This is one of uh, Black Lives Matter's most prominent voices, DeRay McKesson, the guy, you know, the, the, the blue vest that's that Duray McKesson? <laughs> yeah, that Duray McKesson. Was that um, a shock to hear from him? It was a shock to hear from him simply because I didn't expect anybody to be on our campus until the next day. Um, they had the permit for the following day. Everybody was expecting them to come. It was supposed mm -hmm. to be uh, a well-planned out, well-protected event where police were supposed to be present to protect citizens. Um, and out of nowhere, I get this call at about 10 p.m., and it's DeRay telling me that that was not what was happening, that there were white nationalists on the campus the night before, and there were no wow. police officers present to protect students for the most part. Uh, and as you know, um, our line is full of uh, residents. There are students who live on the line, as well as professors, throughout the school year and uh, sometimes throughout the summer. And so it was... Uh, a dangerous event, to say the least, for those people who had to actually inhabit that space while there were hundreds of white nationalists storming with uh, with torches on our campus. Uh, and from that moment, <laughs> I realized that it was a much bigger event than, um, you know, what was initially expected by me and Aaron. 
And the following day, I couldn't help but to engage as much as possible from afar. And so I wasn't on campus. I was in Chicago doing work and had to uh, keep up from students on campus who were organizing and present, uh, checking in with friends who were still leaders on the campus, um, and also make sure that community members that I was close to uh, were safe while they were either counter-protesting or staying at home and just ensuring that they personally um, were safe while in the community and this large event was occurring. So we know that, unfortunately, not everyone was safe. Um, I did see the video of Heather Hare's murder uh, by James Field as he drove through a crowd of people deliberately. But speaking of those viral videos and other videos of, you know, police using extreme and often deadly force, um, uh, specifically against black and brown people, um, I know a handful of my friends who no longer watch those videos because it's, you know, obviously traumatic to see. I wonder for for you, do, do you watch videos um, of people, you know, experiencing violence at the hands of police? Do you, do, you, do you make a decision to deliberately watch them or to maybe not watch them? Yeah, it kind of ebbs and flows for me. So there are some moments where uh, I'm just tired and I feel like we all have these moments. Uh, People in our community experience this, uh, you know, in moments where it's not televised in media nationally, uh, and then moments where it's directly in front of us. But it seems like uh, there's never someone in our community who's not experiencing this kind of abuse at any given moment. And sometimes I'm just tired. And so I, I opt out of it. I don't look at the social media when it's happening. Um, there was something that happened really recently uh, in Pittsburgh, and I just couldn't, you know, give myself the energy to, to look at it. Um, and then there are other moments where I feel like I have to look at it. Um, and me being someone who is very aware of what's going on uh, for personal reasons and uh, from observing from other people's experiences, I know that it's happening and I know that there needs to be work to uh, mitigate this issue. My worry is that the people who, um, who are not as aware of the issue, who are not as invested, who aren't... Uh, convinced that this is a national issue that needs national attention from, uh, you know, people who have the power to make change, they can ignore this just as well as any of us. And, and, that's, and that's what worries me, is that they have the power to, um, even though it's, you know, blasted throughout our social media, and they have the power to, to just erase it, to block it, to, you know, Trump's blocked millions of people on Twitter. <laughs> um, right. And every individual has the same power to sort of curate their media so that they don't have to uh, acknowledge what's happening to black and brown bodies throughout America. And, and so uh, when I think about that, I continually try to push myself to engage with the media because it, it pushes me to, one, uh, continue doing the work that I'm so passionate about and also um, reminds me that there are people out there who still don't acknowledge this issue, which means that there's still plenty more work to get to be done. Sure. On this podcast, we never shy away from speaking directly uh, to white people when we think it's important, and it often is. In reference to these viral videos, do you think that white people have a duty, or moral or, or otherwise, to not shy away from these videos and to watch them? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, you have, to, you have to look at history and be very, like, real about how America still functions to this day. And, and, the, and the truth of the matter is, White Americans still maintain the, the majority and the bulk of power, uh, resources, funds in America. And, and until that changes, and, and even after that changes, to be honest, there is a, 
obligation for those people whose ancestors oppressed black Americans to engage in uh, what I believe should be reparations, but, uh, you know, any sort of action that will help to alleviate the strife that's been caused by generations of oppression uh, at their hands. And so there's no way that a white citizen could ever um, say that they're not complicit in uh, perpetuating racism, police brutality, um, institutional discrimination without, if they're the same white Americans that are not engaging with this content, not being effective allies, not ensuring that um, the person next to them, who may be a person of color, is just as safe, can exercise their rights to the same capacity. And if those rights are being violated, they're stepping in, they're being white citizens stepping in to ensure that that person is protected and that person can still um, access their rights in places where they might be, um, you know, in immense danger. Man, I could not agree more. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about your decision to go to law school. So uh, you're now a, you're a rising 2L at, at University of Michigan, is that right? Yes, thank God. Yeah, <laughs> 1L year, your first year is out, of, is out of the way. That's the hardest oh, one yeah. by far. Um, so, yeah, could you talk about your decision to, to go to law school and, and uh, choosing Michigan and then, and then um, you know, any of the work that, that you'd like to talk about that you've been involved in uh, at, the, at the university? Yeah, um, so I'll talk about why I went to law school first, and I'll, I'll base it on uh, the two experiences I had before law school. So I graduated the University of Virginia in 2016. Uh, for that entire first year, I spent my time at a brand agency in New York City called Sylvain Labs. Sylvain Labs was uh, an amazing firm um, where I did a ton of brand strategy work uh, basically repositioning brands to uh, better sort of uh, craft their narrative and story and build value for that brand. Um, and, you know, it was beneficial to me for various reasons. One being it helped me <laughs> live for a year. Right. Um, and, and two being that it, it helped me uh, better build my storytelling sort of uh, skill set and understand the power of crafting a story from beginning to end very meticulously. Um, and I remember really enjoying that job and um, really feeling intellectually stimulated and challenged, uh, but very often feeling like I was not contributing to the wellness of people around me. And coming from an experience at the University of Virginia where <laughs> everything that I was doing was based in my passion for black, poor um, citizens who have perpetually you know, been uh, oppressed in America, it was really hard for me to make that transition. Um, mm -hmm. So I, re I remember um, about six six to seven months into my job at Sylvain, we received a proposal uh, for a project that from a very large organization um, that I probably can't name, um, but many of you will be familiar with, uh, who basically asked my uh, organization, my company to craft um, a proposal for an advertising campaign that was uh, about police reform in New York City. Um, so this was a pretty large budget for a nonprofit, and they knew how passionate I was about the issue and asked me to craft a proposal. And so I worked with a couple of other uh, strategists on this proposal. Uh, we finally got it out, and the organization uh, was really excited about it and actually wanted us to move forward with it. And my firm told me, um, we're sorry, but we don't think we can take this project right now for various reasons. 
Um, and in that moment, I, I realized that I was doing work that was very stimulating, that was enjoyable for me, but that wasn't making the impact that I foresaw myself making when I graduated from university. And it's one moment um, where I had the chance to make that impact was sort of stripped away from me. And so that pushed me to uh, move back to Chicago, where I decided I wanted to do community work. And I got to take part in the position at a charter school on the south side of Chicago, where I was doing half uh, restorative practice work in a discipline space with students. And I was uh, halfway uh, teaching juniors and seniors post-secondary prep sort of skills in the classroom. And I finished that year and felt like I made an impact on about 20 to 25 students, realistically, in a space where there were over 1,400 students. And that just didn't feel right to me either. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm in both of these spaces, one where I felt um, way too selfish, like I wasn't giving back enough. Um, and, you know, the latter space where I felt like I was making an impact, but in, in a space that just wasn't large enough for where I think I could be uh, applying my skill set. And so that's when I decided um, law school was the right decision for me. And I, I, I'm at Michigan now, and I'm really enjoying it. Uh, the material is amazing. Um, constitutional law is mind-blowing and very upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I think it's going to be the right decision for me after I finish up these three years. And so um, I hope that once I graduate, I can work um, at a firm for a little while to make, to make some money um, and hopefully use um, a portion of that capital to basically go back and serve uh, either the community in Chicago or New York. Um, I'm not really sure about that yet, but do work for black and brown communities where I can actually implement my law education in in a way that is beneficial to those who don't have the resources that I've been so lucky to, you know, have garnered over the years and hopefully just go from there. So my longer term goal is public service. I'm hoping to serve the community and do that in whatever capacity I'm needed and hopefully find a, a good space to, you know, support my community uh, in the spaces of racial justice, housing reform, police reform, and those those things. And so you said, uh, you asked me what I am doing on campus right now, and mostly that just is studying. <laughs> right. <laughs> First year of law school is pretty much hell, but I've been trying to do a little bit of work, and um, that you know, has to do with recruiting more black students at Michigan, um, ensuring that our community feels comfortable. Uh, there's been a lot going on at Michigan as well regarding diversity and inclusion, and I've been trying to uh, contribute to those efforts via uh, working in collaboration with admission and also working with uh, student groups uh, as the 1L representative for the Black, Black Law Students Association um, and other groups geared toward justice on campus, um, as Michigan is very similar to UVA in that uh, communities and um, administration are trying to make things better, but there's still a lot of problems regarding diversity and inclusion that need to be tackled in. So I'm just hoping to, you know, get this education and also uh, contribute on campus when and where I can. Wow, sounds like you're a sounds like you're a busy guy. Um, I can I can definitely understand where you're coming from. I wonder if you notice any differences between UVA and Michigan's campus in terms of the sort of the climate and the sort of racial culture there. A lot of people think that racist things and especially abuse like you've experienced happens in the South and in Southern states. Um, and so I wonder if you could sort of give our listeners a comparison from someone who is, you know, back-to-back experiencing, you know, going to two elite institutions in two completely different states, um, but who has the through line of being this person who's committed to observing and combating racial, you know, 
the problems that we're seeing, the racial problems that we're seeing in our country. And so I wonder, yeah, if you could talk about similarities that you see or differences or, or yeah, how do the two compare? Yeah, I think they're really similar in terms of uh, the community. Uh, the communities in Charlottesville and Ann Arbor are both very geared to uh, the universities that inhabit it. And so everything sort of revolves around Michigan the same way that it does around the University of Virginia. And while I would say um, the Midwest culturally is is uh, pretty different than, uh, you know, Virginia culturally, a lot of the same problems still exist. I think that sometimes we think about race and we think about the South and we say, oh, racism only exists in the South or like these incidents are only happening in the South. Uh, but we sort of forget how intertwined uh, issues of race is with every other political, social issue that we sort of face. And so um, one big thing that black students um, at Michigan were facing that uh, they've been trying to get me privy to, I actually joined the student council at Michigan, the university-wide student council, as opposed to the law school student council, in order to ensure that I was still connected with the campus and that I could actually contribute to all of our community as opposed to just um, the law school, which can be pretty closed off. And so I've been speaking to a lot of uh, student leaders throughout the different schools and communities. Um, and one thing the black students were on, focusing on very recently um, were uh, tuition hikes at the university and trying to uh, actually afford to go to school. And so uh, there are a lot of black students who get into Michigan uh, and can't afford to actually pay to go to the school. And so there's, there's a struggle with maintaining the black population there because uh, students can't pay, which was uh, from my first year until I graduated from the university, also an issue at uh, UVA. And we right. don't always acknowledge how tied in that is to the fact that those students who are poor are often students of color. So that's been a big part of the Michigan experience so far as well. Um, and so there is definitely some overlap uh, between UVA and Michigan when you're talking about um, access in terms of funding, you're talking about local uh, community members who are black not being able to attend a university in their community. Um, but there's also been uh, issues where different groups have found coalition around different issues where there are places that they can meet um, and, so, and sort of coalesce to bring about, about larger change on campus. Well, it's been really exciting and I must say encouraging to hear all the work that you're doing in, you know, wherever you're at, the work you've done and the work you'll, I'm sure, continue to do. I would ask, though, for our white listeners and folks who consider themselves allies um, who are now fighting uh, for reform and progress within these, you know, racist institutions that we participate in every day. What do you see as their role? What do you want to see done by white allies in university-like institutions or even larger institutions like our government? What do you want to see from white people who want to help? Yeah, I can't tell enough anecdotes about um, me sitting in a room with uh, a majority of white students talking about organizing and realizing this dynamic where um, they speak uh, and I listen and I respond. And when I start responding, somehow they forget how to listen. Uh, mm. And this is, these are issues um, directly affecting people of color, black citizens. Um, and, and I've seen the same uh, issue in law school where um, we're talking about these issues which are really prevalent. Uh, and there are no people affected by the issues present in the space. And so I think mm -hmm. that uh, something that white allies should continue to challenge themselves to do is check the space that they're in when they're facing these issues. Um, and if that space doesn't look like the people who you're trying to assist, 
get some people who are a part of that, who are being affected by that problem in the space, no matter where you have to look to get them there. Um, and so that's the first thing. The second thing is when they're in that space, check your pride, check your ego, um, and take a step back and listen. It's extremely uh, important for white citizens and white allies to be passionate about these issues and want to contribute. But it's even more important to empower the voices of the people who are actually being affected by these issues on a daily basis. And if those uh, white citizens can't use their privilege to um, to expand the voices of those affected most harshly by these issues, then we will never make progress because every agenda being pushed forward will be the ones of the powerful, wealthy white citizens who don't know the damn thing about the issues that are actually affecting communities of color. And so it's super important to listen um, and take in the issues from the perspectives of those affected before you take any action um, to remedy what's going on. Wow. So you heard it here, folks. FTR number four was referenced uh, by <laughs> Martise Johnson, and we did not tell him to do so beforehand. So that just shows you how important they are. Well, we want to thank you uh, so much for your time and for taking time out of your day to talk with us. We really appreciate it and have definitely enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, thank you guys. This was great. And, uh, you know, look forward to speaking with you guys again. So now it's time for this episode's action item. Our action item for this episode um, comes into play when white people and black people are talking about uh, racism and maybe their experiences, issues, or opinions, anything like that. So the action item for white people is try not to get defensive when you're talking to black and brown people about racism. I think the knee-jerk reaction for white people when faced with conversations about racism or, or black people talking about their experiences is for white people to take it personally and then try to defend themselves personally. And that's an issue because it doesn't leave black and brown people space to discuss their opinions and experiences and feelings honestly. So my ask of white people is when you're in these conversations and you're talking about these things with black and brown people, don't take things personally and don't get defensive. Because when you start defending yourself and making excuses and relating the problems to yourself personally, what you're doing is denying the black and brown people their opinions and and challenging their experiences. Um, and that's so not helpful for race conversations. You're not giving yourself an opportunity to learn. It often ends up cutting the conversation short because as black and brown people, it's tiring to convince white people that what you're saying is true and your experiences are honest. So getting defensive in a conversation only serves to end that conversation. And what we want to encourage people to do is to talk more and to listen more um, and to engage more. And I think it's worth noting that more likely, more often than not, if a black or brown person has engaged you as a white person in a conversation about race, that black or brown person is taking a risk to do that. Exactly. And so you are shutting them down by making it personal and by making it about you and you're denying acknowledgement of the risk that they took to even open up to you about this because it's a hard thing to talk about with white people because it's so often taken personally. So action item for this episode, white people don't get defensive in conversations with black and brown people about racism.
Black Ant is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to subscribe, rate, review wherever you listen, and share with your friends. Black Ant was written and produced by us, Jonathan and April Perkins, and it was edited by April. Our theme music is by Fifth Child. You can find more of his work at fifthchildmusic.com. That's the number five in fifthchildmusic.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time, be mindful, be vigilant, and and keep keep asking asking questions. questions. what I like to do when April's gone because it's still recording. Okay, so this has been Beatboxing with Jonathan. This is a new segment in the show. End of idea, yeah.